Welcome to the Hindsight Podcast, a production by the Army Foundry Platform at Fort Liberty, North Carolina. I'm your host, Vu Tran, and today you are listening to Line of Effort 2, The Great Game, stories promoting a better understanding of strategy and the geostrategic ideas that shape intelligence analysis. This is part two of our interview with Professor Kerry Gershanik, author of the book, Political Warfare, Strategies for Combating China's Plan to, quote, win without fighting. We spent the last episode discussing what political warfare actually is and how it affects our day-to-day life and operations. Part two is going to dig deeper and look at how political warfare is actually carried out by the People's Republic of China. With that said, we'll pick up right where we left off last time. I'm going to transition now to how the PRC is organized for political warfare. You've already mentioned the United Front Works. Are there other organizations that the PLA relies on to enact political warfare across all these competition domains? Sure. The the, the PLA is a major player in the Chinese Communist Party's uh, political warfare. For most people listening are active duty army, I would imagine. And you're thinking that maybe the PLA is like you, that when they join the uh, PLA, uh, the Chinese soldiers join the PLA, they raise their right hand and they they vow uh, to support and defend their country. They don't. They are not like you. The people in the People's Liberation Army raise their right hands and they vow to support the Chinese Communist Party. They are a party army. That's all they are. The PLA is the People's Liberation Army is simply the 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 armed wing of the Chinese Communist Party. So what does that mean? They're heavily engaged in the Chinese Communist Party Central Committee on the party side and on the state side, directly under the National People's uh, Congress Standing Committee, the two highest bodies in um, in the People's Republic of China, the party and the state. both of those top-level uh, governing bodies are intimately involved in political warfare on a day-to-day basis. And I can go in the, the whole line and block chart going down through the, the, the Central Military Commission and the Politburo and the State Council on the, uh, the PRC side. But the point is, every organization has major political warfare responsibilities going all the way down. And the PLA under the Central Military Commission has a massive responsibility. Its job is to go after our general officers, co-opt them, to to deceive them into thinking no threat from China. And if you read my book, you'll see that we've had we've had general and uh, flag officers in the United States military who have um, said basically China poses no threat. They they were won over and deceived, and that's part of. PLA's political warfare agenda. They want to influence opinion leaders in other countries, and they want to win over our uh, those involved in uh, developing our national security, not just the top leaders, but their executive assistants, their key targets. Because if you if you if you win over the aid, if you co-opt the aid, the aid is going to make sure that the general or the SES gets fed the information that the CCP wants. So as part of the PLA's political warfare, a very important organization that your analysts should know about is the China Association of International Friendly Contacts. That is targeting your senior officers right now, your officials, to include your retirees and your executive assistants. Uh, in Hawaii, before I um, 
up until about a decade ago when I uh, moved over to Asia to begin teaching. A number of retired general flag officers were given free trips to China. We're, we're taken on propaganda tours. We're given opportunities to start businesses and uh, in China and partnerships. And then in, 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 uh, they would come back and basically parrot the Chinese Communist Party line because the PLA had co-opted them through the China Association of International Friendly Contacts, or KFIC for short. So again, uh, study these, what I'm telling you about analysts and officers, study the Sanya Initiative, study how KFIC co-ops our officers because they're the primary ones going after active duty military or civil servants. Um, and uh, their, their job is to not just recruit spies, but to corrupt or co-opt your thinking. To, to deflate the threat from the People's Liberation Army, to have you come back and tell your bosses, oh, there, there's, there's nothing here, uh, there's, there's nothing to worry about. So again, the PLA uh, move plays a massive role that uh, in political warfare on behalf of the Chinese Communist Party that most Americans do not recognize. Why? We mirror image. We think, well, we don't do political warfare in the U.S. military, so you know, there's no reason to think you know, the, 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 the PLA is involved in it, but it is. It, it's massively engaged, in it, and you're the target. Uh, so on that front, how does Beijing attempt to leverage, so willingly or through coercion, its diaspora population um, when, it, when we're talking about political warfare efforts? Well, you, part of it's lawfare, <laughs> part of it's legal warfare. Part of it is the, uh, the People's Republic of China, especially lately, but this has been going on for a number of years. They have laws that say that if you are of Chinese descent, uh, you're from China and you're anywhere overseas, doesn't matter if your family's lived overseas uh, for generations in a different country, your duty, your responsibility, your loyalty is to the PRC. And so you are required to assist their intelligence organizations. You are required to uh, assist them in their political warfare. If you're a student um, studying at the University of Hawaii, for example, but at other universities as well, this is all documented, uh, richly documented, uh, the, the Chinese student associations will get their orders from the local uh, con Chinese consulate or local or uh, the embassy. And they'll say, we want you out protesting with these placards we're going to provide you at five o'clock tomorrow when the president of Taiwan is doing a you know, flying through the United States. We want you out there protesting the presence of the president of Democratic Taiwan in the United States. Or we want you protesting about this issue that's key to uh, the Chinese Communist Party. All of these organizations are very tightly controlled, and the diaspora has many, many organizations that more and more, uh, their organizations and the Chinese language news media has been taken over by the Chinese Communist Party because either through money, they bought the news media, or they, they forced out of uh, business the uh, the. the the critics of the PRC who own the news media, they, they cut off all advertising for that news organization. And then they either put it out of business or the, the pro-PRC 
uh, people that they wanted took over the news media. So almost all the, the Chinese language uh, news media that services the diaspora worldwide, and, and especially in the United States, is pro-Chinese Communist Party. So how, there's other ways besides law and through uh, co-option of the news media that the uh, Chinese Communist Party controls, tries to control the Chinese diaspora. If you have a relative in living in China, and again, you're at MIT or you're studying in the US, and they want you to uh, steal information, to spy, um, they'll threaten your relatives. You may not want to do it, but you're gonna say, uh, my relatives are at their mercy. They'll even put the relatives on the phone, incidentally. They, they've done that and they're in pain. And uh, they'll tell the, uh, they'll tell the uh, overseas Chinese, Here's what we want you to do, or it's going to get worse. So that's one way they do it. Another way they do it is they hypernationalize uh, the people within China. The Chinese people within China are hypernationalized on a daily basis. Um, that has implications we could talk about later, but also those living overseas. So when we had two Navy petty officers, two U.S. Navy petty officers, um, arrested for spying for the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, turns out the mother of one of those petty officers highly encouraged him to spy for China because that was the homeland. You do that for the motherland. You, you, you spy against the United States Navy and the United States military because you're Chinese. Very racist. They're, you know, you look at the law about what a hate crime is. You, you target someone based on their ethnicity or their gender, right? Um, well, that's, that's exactly what's happening with PRC operatives and the MSS and United Front and others, they're targeting overseas Chinese based on their rates, based on their ethnicity, and getting them, encouraging them or coercing them to commit crimes. So these are in effect hate crimes that they're committing, but they're pretty effective globally in the way they approach this. And we have to get a lot more effective at protecting the civil rights and the freedom of the overseas Chinese, the Chinese diaspora within America and within other countries to protect them from this Chinese Communist Party, brutal coercion and uh, entrapment. So I'd just like to round this out. There is also a national security law, right? That compels Chinese companies to also spy for the state. Yes. Yeah, there, there's there's a number of laws. Again, on the lawfare front, the Chinese Communist Party uh, and, the, and the party state is what we should refer to it as, the, the PRC and the Chinese Communist Party, it's all one, it's the party state, uh, has passed laws that if, you, know, they, you don't have to be uh, an SOE, just any organization out of, out of China, basically your loyalty is to China, to the PRC, and so anything that you do to help us, uh, it's not just voluntary, we'll tell you, okay, Corporation A, you've just gone into a partnership with an aircraft uh, company in Germany, or you just you just bought a big track of land in a Midwest U.S. state that is very close to a U.S. military installation. Well, here's what we want to do with the land you bought, or they might just say, go buy that land, Corporation, and we're going to use it for our purposes. And, and uh, don't, don't think that these purchases of large tracts of land not too far from U.S. military installations, don't think that's benign in any sense. There's more than the profit motive behind a lot of these purchases. 
the, the, the businesses have to do it. And, and frankly, because again, so many of the people in the PRC, they're, from the time they're babies, they're taught to hate America. They're, uh, it's very Hamas-like in the way they, they, uh, they raise their children. They're, you see videos of um, the way they teach them to hate, sometimes uh, posted where the children are, uh, small children reenact the assassination of Prime Minister Abe. Uh, and then they cheer at the end when he's assassinated. And they uh, they say and do a lot of things that are, are well documented the way they indoctrinate Chinese children from the time they are very, very young. So by the time you get to be a corporate executive, you want to help the state. It's not like you're being forced to do it. It's not like you have very pro-America or pro-democracy instincts embedded in you. You, you want to help the PRC. You want to help Mother China. So between the laws and the hyper-nationalization, there's very deep control. And that has impact, uh, especially the most recent laws are they're, they're very, very concerning to businesses from overseas that uh, maybe don't want to be associated with Chinese businesses anymore. But that's a, that's a whole different line of discussion. When we think about something like multi-domain operations, there's that strategic support area, which is basically the homeland at this point. And, you know, with that context in mind, how have these political war efforts, or rather, have these political war efforts reached the American homeland? Or is it still, you know, it targets Americans, but really at the peripheries or maybe like at OCONUS locations and it hasn't quite penetrated here yet? Oh no! the The United Front Work Department is operating at this at the national level and at the subnational level. At the states, heavily engaged in states, uh, from California to Michigan, uh, major inroads there. Uh, Idaho, which you, you wouldn't expect it. Um, there, there's much. Uh, there's a lot of co-option going on within the U.S. Just from the uh, United Front Work Department getting support for using state pension funds like California to uh, to arm and equip the People's Liberation Army. No kidding. Um, there is an effort to uh, analysts uh, take a look at it to uh, even the, the thrift savings plan. Um, the fellow who was in charge of the GSP for a while was trying to get your active duty military and your civil servants thrift savings plan uh, investments to go to the PRC to be invested in companies that were arming and equipping the People's Liberation Army and coming up with their new equipment to kill American soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines. So again, the 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 infiltration is massive. And again, it's very well documented. There's there's reports on sub subnational infiltration, congressional reports on it, congressional commission reports on it. The private sector in America, that is the civil society side, has actually done more. Uh, on this than our State Department has. Um, the, the Secretary of State uh, Pompeo spoke about it publicly uh, often, but there's not much being done on the U.S. government side right now to counter it. Uh, it's really been civil society, foundations and think tanks in America that have, have exposed this, have written about it. Unfortunately, Vu, that has been the way that the uh, the political warfare infiltration of many other countries uh, have, have come to light. It wasn't the government that exposed it. Look at Australia. It was uh, in New Zealand. Both countries were heavily, heavily infiltrated. A lot of politicians 
uh, were bought off. A lot of uh, infiltration of business and, uh, and industry, a lot of very intense academic infiltration, just as we have in the United States. And the government wasn't allowed, or at least the intelligence organizations weren't allowed to, uh, to make that public. So it was writers like uh, Anne-Marie Brady, who is a scholar in New Zealand, who exposed what was uh, the, the massive infiltration in New Zealand. Clive Hamilton in Australia and, and a few other uh, brave souls who on an, uh, academics on an individual basis who uh, were exposing John Gernot. Uh, it, it was individuals and in, in small organizations that exposed it, Canada the same way. And then finally, the government was forced to act and forced to actually release the intelligence saying, yes, you know, these reports are true. This is this is this uh, political warfare is being waged against us and it's massive. So that's um, when you ask, is it already in the heartland? Yeah. Look at the purchases of major tracts of land. Look at the universities that won't allow discussion or invitation to people speaking about what the Chinese Communist Party has done to Tibet. Um, that used to be common to have people come in and speak about the, the occupation, the brutal repression of Tibet and other places that communist China has taken over Hong Kong. Now it's rare to get, you know, the, 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 the Chinese student associations, the Chinese embassy will call the university and say, oh, if you allow these speakers to come in and speak, or if you allow this professor to stay on your payroll, this critic of the People's Republic of China professor, to stay on your payroll, we'll stop sending our full tuition students to your university and we'll stop giving you these multi-million dollar grants um, through so-called private citizens uh, each year. This is common now in the United States. And again, very well documented. This is a good point to have a, a nuanced discussion on the efficacy of all this. So I don't dispute this is effective stuff. Uh, what I'm very curious about is you know, in Australia and Canada and New Zealand, there appeared to be major whiplash when the public was made aware of right. the right. depth of PRC infiltration. You know, in the medium to long run, does this hurt China uh, when these democracies eventually wake up or if they wake up? So that's one. And then two is, you know, a lot of these tactics are, re, you know, they're heavily dependent on keeping the money flowing, right? As long as you have money to keep bribing these people and paying for these, you know, quite frankly, they're probably expensive operations to buy entire media organizations out. So how do you see that efficacy as we move into the future and China hits its economic troubles right now, you know, with a collapsing real estate market, with um, de-risking by Western nations, uh, how do you see that evolving? You know, how do you see the efficacy evolving over time? The economic impact of uh, sanctions and other steps we can take, like go after the the money that the Chinese Communist Party uh, has has exfiltrated out. Of, of members of the Chinese Communist Party and their families have, have pulled out of China. Again, that whole economic network, how the, how the economy works within China is a, is a separate case study, but they're, they're secreting out as much as they can with, through their families. You start going after that, uh, the, the, uh, the Xi Jinping daughter is at Harvard University. I mean, you start going after, look, look where the money's going that's coming out of there and then go after that money. 
you start putting other sanctions on. Um, the, the, the Chinese Communist Party has gotten pretty good watching what happened to Russia after it invaded Ukraine and how it learned to evade a lot of the sanctions. Chinese Communist Party is taking notes on that. They're gonna. They're not going to be as hurt by sanctions as a lot of people think they are. But if you cut off other forms of income, um, yes, that will have an impact. But here's the here's the reason not to put too much hope in cutting off the funds because a lot of the United Front Work Department work is is funded by organized crime. You know, go and do the Canada case study. A major political warfare campaign was done against the Marianas Islands to keep the uh, the relocation of U.S. forces from Japan. And the buildup on, on Guam and Saipan and, and that to, to, to delay and to, uh, frustrate that. Well, that was funded by casino. I mean, so their casino warfare, again, this is where unrestricted warfare is unrestricted. There's, there's many, many ways. There's many, many. You can weaponize anything, tourism. Um, you can weaponize casinos. So the casinos, the organized crime makes a lot of the political warfare self-funding. The Belt and Road Initiative is basically, it's a way to influence globally, okay? So in effect, that's part of political warfare too. It's not just a do good, we're going to help people build up their infrastructure. It's a way to build the ports and the airfields the PLA needs to exercise global dominance when the time comes. And certainly regional through the Pacific Islands. South Pacific, it's, it's certainly a means to get hard power, the, the, the PLA and the, the, the Chinese Coast Guard and the maritime militia ports to go to overseas and airfields uh, to utilize and then win over the countries, buy over the elites from all the money they make uh, through the BRI. But it's basically a political warfare, self-funding organization to some degree. So if you're asking how do we fight this, if that's the ultimate purpose of your question, do you do, you, do, you do it by cutting off money? Again, it's got to be combined arms. You got to fight it. You fight propaganda by by showing it's propaganda. You fight the media organizations that, um, and I can name some here, but the, the point is that some organizations that used to be respected in Asia basically have become mouthpieces for the PRC because either the staff was threatened and I can give a personal example of that. Uh, uh, one one publication I used to write for uh, was based out of Hong Kong. And uh, it used to be pretty objective publication. I mean, we could write things that were critical of China. But night after night, the, the staff would come out and find their car windows were smashed and their tires were slashed. And they would get texts at work from people following their uh, kindergarten and elementary school children to school and taking pictures of the children and saying, oh, I sure hope your, your little girl stays healthy this week. So eventually that publication uh, just, you know, they, they were coerced into toning down criticism of the PRC and, and basically becoming an arm of their propaganda. So it's the way you fight all these. You have to fight on many different battlefields. The economic approach to countering is useful. And there's different ways you fight that intelligently. The Treasury Department, through laws that we have, uh, through the, the Foreign Agents Registration Act. I mean, if we just got all these people with the who had been co-opted and uh, enticed with lots of money, million-dollar deals through the Thousand Talents Program and so-called consultancies, our university professors, our you know other people with a lot of technical knowledge they got from American universities 
going to work directly for the PRC in transferring all that information. Former military officers going to teach their their pilots um, combat skills that the Chinese, uh, the PLA Air Force and the, the naval aviators haven't had a chance to get. If we start going after these people and under the FARA and, and uh, uh, other other laws, that's part of the battle. But but Vu, this is all part of the battle. That's why you have to you fight this as you would a combined arms war, a multi-domain combined arms war. There's no one panacea. There's no one sure cure silver bullet that's going to stop it. You have to have intelligent people, good organization, well-funded, well-resourced, and hire the right people. And then you have a chance at winning this war. Otherwise, it looks pretty bleak. So, you know, me looking at this, it I, don't, I just don't understand how the PRC leadership would see this as being a sustainable way of fighting. Because in many ways, it to me, it looks like they're picking fights with everybody all at once. Um, you know, that old adage, he who f- tries to defend or fight everywhere fights nowhere. So do you have any, you know, but, thoughts but, but on it's that? worked, but it's worked. It's worked since the 1920s. They, they this, it, 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 go back to Maoist doctrine, which Xi Jinping religiously repeats. Go back and read his, for your intelligence analysts listening to us, go read his speeches, whether they're in Chinese or They've been translated by reliable organizations. He's telling his country, he's telling his generals, he's telling his ministers, prepare for war. He's telling the Chinese people, prepare for protracted war. Go back to the Maoist terminology and the concept going back to the Long March, et cetera, and all the things that that were the basis of Maoist uh, guerrilla warfare and, and people's wars. This is a protracted struggle. That is the key term. They're in this for the long haul. They don't care what it costs or how long it takes. And that's where, again, we got to stop mirror imaging. They, you know, go, go, people say, oh, well, China's not going to invade Taiwan. I've got a lot of experience in Taiwan. I got a lot of experience looking at what China's doing to prepare to invade and annex Taiwan. They have the capability to do that if they, when they want to do it, and when the opportunity arises, they'll do it. And they're not going to be too mindful of the cost. They're going to see when the time is right, and this is all part of again going back thousands of years. Um, there's there's terminology they have for this. You wait for the right moment, and then you strike when no one's expecting it. So. Again, they're opportunist. They're waiting for the right moment. They're building capacity and they're continuously dividing, demoralizing and disintegrating our society and other societies. So we will just succumb without, you know, that's the whole concept of political warfare, to win without fighting, to win without firing a shot. Really what that means is to win without us fighting back. They want to demoralize us. They want to divide us. They want to, again, their term is to disintegrate, which means destroy us. Um, And and they're in it for the long haul. So they they don't have a cost-benefit analysis the same way you do. They didn't care when they went into Korea. They sent in, uh, in the wintertime, they sent in uh, 100,000 Red Army soldiers without winter clothing, without the artillery that that Moscow was going to give them 
Uh, they didn't have any of that, but they they just went in. Uh, and they didn't care about the losses. They they wanted to stop the UN forces, America and the UN forces, from completely uh, destroying the their their puppet North Korean army. And they didn't care what the cost was. And this is the example that Xi Jinping is citing to his generals and to his ministers in these closed door speeches. So again, I'd ask, you know, analysts, get out there and read what he's saying because he's preparing his country for war. We're hoping on the on the West side, and everybody's saying, oh, we, we, you know, we, we, they won't attack, they won't attack. Well, you know, you, you might have had the Polish uh, defense minister say that on August 28, 1939, and yet September 1st, it didn't matter how many times he or the prime minister of England said, we're going to have peace in our time. Once you have, in the case of the PRC, a totalitarian expansionist genocidal country on the march, and they see an opportunity to to push forward in a strategically important area, they're going to do it. You know, we can't mirror image. We, we can't assume that they're going to use the same cost-benefit analysis we do. And it, it, he's saying this to his people, and he's citing Mao Zedong, and he's citing the Korean War example. Protracted struggle, going to be great cost, but we're doing this for the party. I think you're absolutely right on this point, right? From an analyst standpoint, it's that failure to imagine, you know, like failure to imagine a major attack by Hamas on the southern border of Israel or failure to imagine a, you know, World War II style invasion of Ukraine really puts us on the back foot um, when those mistakes are made. I'd like to ask you at this point, um, there are some people who think that if Beijing is able to achieve its goals, which, you know, has been framed as dominance or regional dominance, then it will be satisfied and therefore no longer pose a threat to the United States. Like, so in a way we can reach a new world order where we can coexist. Um, what's your view on that? Can there ever be an end state where China is powerful, but not the most powerful in which it would be satisfied with that status quo? Well, that's um, incredibly, uh, the, the most charitable thing I can say about that mindset is it's, it's, it's incredibly naive, fatally naive, disastrously naive. And that's the kindest, uh, kindest way I can describe that. They are, it, it, it's the same mindset with Hitler and the Sudetenland. Just give him that. He'll be happy. No, read what the PRC is saying. <laughs> I know I have too. Um, and, you know, there, there's a bunch of essays in the New York Times lately by uh, people who's, who's, you know, been very, very close to kicker. They think tank for the Ministry of State Security in one case and the other just simply naive. Um, and uh, a, a, an article by a guy who's supposed to be an expert on the PLA saying that the buildup of uh, um, the the P, PLA's um, nuclear forces is all America's fault. Th this is nonsense. Read what the CCP is saying. Read what they are teaching their officers. Read what the speeches that she, you know, this, that she is giving in private that have been you know, made public and uh, translated and people who know what they're doing, like Matt Pottinger, former Deputy National Security Advisor who speaks fluent Mandarin and, and reads it, uh, read, read their interpretation of what what G is saying. And he's saying we're going to war and we're going to be the global dominant power. It's not just regional anymore. That it's we or we're the Middle Kingdom. 
We were the center of the universe. And they, they very much think this. We deserve to be that way um, from here on in. That's why you see this mapping political warfare. You saw um, in, the, in the past several months where China came out with the official map, which has basically, it, it goes back to a propaganda map that, that uh, the nationalists in China put out around 1938. It shows that South Korea is part of China. It shows major parts of India are part of China. It shows Singapore as part of China. Um, you know, again, look at their official maps. Look at their their imagined uh, history, and think. You know, look at how they're hyper nationalizing their their own population to believe we deserve to be the dominant power. We deserve once again to be the center of everything, the Middle Kingdom. Uh, they're, oh, just give them Taiwan, just, just give them, you know, the, the, the democratic, you know, nation of, of 23 to 24 million people. And if we just give them that, they'll be satisfied. No, they're going for the Sengkakos next. They're going for the West Philippine Sea. They're going for it now, ladies and gentlemen. All the claimants in the South China Sea know that China has zero legitimacy in what it's claiming. The Arbitral, 2016 Arbitral, uh, cements that in, in, in law that you, there's no validity to the claim, but China is going to take as much as, as it wants in Asia, and it's going to make sure it's a dominant force globally. Why do you think it's doing the relation or building the relations so closely with Russia, with Iran, and of course, North Korea? Uh, that's, you know, it's a love-hate relationship between China and North Korea, but the reality is um, this sort of axis of evil that it's entirely appropriate to use that term, as hackneyed and cliche as it is, but it nonetheless is, they, they are building their own network. China is building its alliances to help. It's, it's got other countries that are supporting it. It's built a great deal of support in the global south because, of, again, its media warfare is, is very impressive. You might detest the message. But it's very impressive in the West and America has done a horrible job in these these locations of getting our narrative out uh, and having a good sound competing narrative. So, again, China wants global dominance and it's not it's not hiding it anymore. Here's the real key to that. No longer does it pretend that, oh, yeah, yeah, we'll go along with this democracy. We think it's kind of nice that they stop. They stopped with that pretense uh, several years ago under Xi. Now it's the totalitarian China model. We are the best model for governance globally, and we're going to export our model of governance. Um, that's in every speech that our model is the best model and concepts like democracy, human rights, freedom of speech, those are quote, corrupt Western values. On every level, Xi Jinping and the CCP are telegraphing. They want dominance globally, and they want their model to be the model globally. They're exporting it, and they're building the bases, and they're building the uh, infrastructure and the networks globally to, to send their rapidly increasing People's Liberation Army out as, as a global power and not just a regional power. To the casual listener, many of the things you describe can be thought of as normal things that all countries do, such as public diplomacy and, you know, and espionage and IP theft to a degree. What makes China's activities different? 
you know? So like, let's say like the, we accuse China of X, Y, Z and the PLA will counter back with a narrative that says, you know, all countries do this. Why are you singling China out? And then maybe they'll cite some example of the U.S. doing something similar in the past. So, you know, so how for the people who think that way, like what, how should they frame it? What is there a test they can kind of do mentally to determine what is malign and you know what's normal? Boo, everything comes back to the nature of the regime. Uh, it's number one. It's not correct to say that everybody does it. Everybody engages in political warfare. Everybody engages in aspects of it. I'll grant you uh, public diplomacy um, and sometimes coercive diplomacy. A lot of countries do that. A lot of countries um, conduct social media operations, not necessarily social media warfare on the scale that the PRC does. Um, not many countries engage in both warrior diplomacy, though, and, and all the other terms that, you, you know, this dizzying array of terminology that falls under political warfare. No one has a United Front work department like the China, China does. They have influence organizations overseas. Um, so it's incorrect to say that everyone conducts political warfare the way the PRC does it. But the central issue is the nature of the regime. If Canada is conducting political warfare, who cares? If Holland is conducting political warfare, who cares? If Brazil is conducting political warfare, who cares? I mean, th these are basically democracies. They're ultimately self-correcting. There's oversight to a degree. China is different. The People's Republic of China is run by the Chinese Communist Party. It is a brutally repressive, expansionist, militarily and economically powerful, genocidal totalitarian regime. And that is the key. That's what you come back to whenever somebody says, oh, you know, it's moral equivalence. You know, we do it, they do it. It's no big deal. It's a big deal when you're up against, again, a brutally repressive expansionist, militarily and economically powerful, genocidal totalitarian regime. Look up the words. We have Marion Webster on our side for each one of those words that you, you look up. The People's Republic of China, the CCP, meets all the elements of those words. A lot of people are afraid to say it because they don't want to hurt the feelings of 1.4 billion Chinese, but that's the reality of the regime that we face. So when they, the CCP, a genocidal totalitarian regime is conducting this on a massive scale to achieve both regional and global hegemony, that's an existential threat. That's the key. The nature of the regime poses an existential threat to democracy, to our nation, and to democracies globally. So that's your answer. One of the main points in your book is that we don't teach political warfare anymore. Uh, so it, that's part of the reason why it's been so difficult for us to react to it, because we, we're just not primed to identify the indicators. Um, I think the topics in our, in our conversation up to this point, you know, has served as a, a great primer on political warfare for the listeners. Um, what I'd like to ask you now is, what, what am I missing? Um, what else should our listeners be aware of when thinking about encountering political warfare in the wild? so to say. Do you have any recommendations for where they should read or, you know, or what they should listen to, to, to really learn more about this? 
Um, there is a great study out of uh, the French Armed Forces uh, organization called URSUM um, that I will provide to you that you can you can put online that people can download. It's it's a master's level uh, look at uh, PRC political warfare. Um, and I will also um, refer you uh, and ask you to put online basically a sort of intro to political warfare 101 that the U.S. Indo-Pacific Command uh, posted on the Indo-Pacific Defense Forum uh, last month, or I'm sorry, in, uh, it was in August that they, they published its uh, semi-annual publication. And it's intro, uh, basically it's, it's PRC Political Warfare 101 and how they uh, use political warfare to uh, repress internally. We didn't even get into that conversation where, you know, they. PRC, uh, the Chinese Communist Party, has killed uh, upward to 100 million Chinese in generally good weather, um, just basically killed them as, as a result of their political warfare operations since 1949. So it goes into uh, it goes into the internal political warfare for internal repression and internal control, and then for global hegemony. Um, so I'd ask you to, to post those three on your site, and then. Um, as far as what to do, I'll, I'll, I'll ask your analysts and your officers, warrant officers and commission officers listening, start your own education programs. Don't wait for someone else to do it. Georgetown University isn't going to do it. It's not in their interest. Do they get different universities that used to run programs during the so-called Cold War that we're still in? Um, for various reasons, they're never going to start a program like this, and they get a lot of funding from different sources out of China, whether they're individual Chinese or through uh, through Thousand Talents programs and other programs, and, and that's well documented. Again, there's the U.S. government reports on how much money Stanford and how much money um, Harvard are getting uh, out of the PRC, and it's phenomenal amounts of money. So you're not going to see the traditional education institutions that helped us during the Cold War to build the cadre of academics, government uh, leaders, policymakers, military uh, personnel that we needed to fight that war, uh, people who were experts in commerce and in, in economics. You're not going to get that out of most civilian universities. In the back of my book, uh, the, the political warfare book, there's a notional five-day course there. There's a curriculum all set up for you. With agile leadership, not a whole lot of money, but just in investing the resources of a good, strong leadership, you could have that up and running in a month. You've got the people in your organization. You could you could teach this, and you've got there's a number of, of of really great minds out there that I'm tapping into routinely in the programs that I run throughout Asia and in the United States. Um, there's a, there's a number of experts you can get to come in and speak at these courses. But the, the first step is, is get a systematic education program going. This concludes part two of our episode on political warfare. Please note that the views expressed in this episode are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the Department of Defense, Department of the Army, or the Army Foundry platform. For those of you who would like to learn more about political warfare, please check out Professor Kershanek's book. It's printed by the Marine Corps University Press and is available for free on their website. A link to it is in the show notes. The book itself provides a great capstone undergraduate level understanding of political warfare, 
and offers a holistic look at how the CCP and PLA practice it. We've also linked to the report from the French Institute for Strategic Research and Indo-PECOM's Introduction to Political Warfare article mentioned in this interview. Also in the show notes for this episode is the episode transcript. If you have questions, comments, and most importantly, suggestions for topics we should cover in future episodes, drop us an email at hindsight.podcast.afp at gmail.com. Until next time, I'm your host, Vu Tran, signing off from Fort Liberty, North Carolina.